All right, and we're live here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil, and we're um, joined. Trista. Yes, yes. I didn't know if you were going to do your own intro, or, but we are joined by the good people of Purgatory Road. We have Director Mark Savage. God bless you. All. Oh, look, he changed. It's excellent. We have Luke Albright, who plays Michael. Hola. Father Vincent, Gary Cairns. Hello. And treacherous Trista, Mary Frances, Trista Robinson. We're good to have Thanks you all here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, hopefully you've heard good things about the show. I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. All lies, all lies. So, uh, uh, Mark, when you uh, were writing the script with uh, with Tom Parnell, uh where did the idea come from? What was the inspiration? Uh, growing up in Catholic. <laughs> growing up in what? Growing up a Catholic helped. You know, um, I, I mean, I like people who are off the rails, not in real life. Don't really want to live with people like that. But uh, the idea of, you know, a priest, I like the idea that when someone is, rep- is representative of one thing, and they're doing like the opposite or they're struggling to do the thing they're supposed to be doing. That was kind of the inspiration for it. You know, we went for a road trip and on the road trip, there was a van in front of us. And I said, what if that was a confessional van? I remember Tom going, huh? And I said, yeah, there's, they're going across the countryside, two priests or a priest and his brother sort of taking confessions. And then in a weird way, that sort of is what inspired, inspired the film. And then, um, I had plenty to add to it because, yeah, I grew up Catholic and I saw all the kind of strangeness of the Catholic education. You know, I mean, I'm a product of that, for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'll get to some other stuff. But you, you, when you mentioned the van, uh, when you had the van and you had all the uh, the, the writings on it, uh, did that when you were actually riding around in that or have it, you know, in public? Did anyone say anything? Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a couple of times a story came back where during their shoot, someone would go to get, you know, say, for example, the transport guy would go to get um, some gas for the vehicle. And while I was pumping gas, someone would come over and ask him if they could go inside there and get heard by priests, you know, like, you know, take confession. So it wasn't like even like, what? I remember being told that and like, but then it's like, well, you know, that's the South, you know, so, you know, it's not that unusual, the idea that someone might do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it did have an interesting effect. And later on after the shoot, the van was was seen around Florida, of course, because that's where, um, you know, Tom, um, the co-producer and co-writer lives, and he was eventually sold the van. But a lot of people were sort of constantly, like, accosting him and wanting to go inside the van see what was inside, but not really understanding that, you know, the inside was a set. It's, it's not a real priest going around in his van, but it's still good to ponder that idea. Right. Well, what did you do with the van afterwards? I mean, it was sold. It was stripped down um, because all these sayings that are on it, they were actually part of a, it's called a wrap. So, we actually did a 3D image of the van and then we wrote on the van on the 3D and computer what we wanted. So apparently the van, the, the wrap was stripped off and then the van itself was, was sold. I don't 
think it was sold to a priest, but you never know. Interesting. So uh, how did everyone else get involved in the movie? Start with Luke. Oh, okay. And Just to throw I you can off. be... You get to be nasty Neil. That's treacherous Trista. I want to be lustful Luke. All right. Murderous Mark and yes. Gallows Gary. Can I like that. Yes, we okay. can do that. That cool. works. Um, Only can we do it? I appro- I totally approve and back this idea. Awesome. All right, it's passed. Motion is passed. Um, I heard about it through Gary. Gary and I have worked on a couple of projects together. I love working with him, and I think he was already attached to the project. And he, we were catching up one day and he's like, Hey, I think he, you might be great for this role. It's my brother. I'm playing this murderous priest. Why don't you read it and see what you think? Um, I read it and really connected with what Mark said about, you know, the duplicity of organized religion the people saying one thing and doing the exact opposite sometimes. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And then I like, I like the brother roles, the, the people that, you know, if you want to watch something like this, I think it's very important to have like a through line for the audience to say, Oh shit, what would I do in that position? Like this seems crazy, but if this guy loves his brother, you know, maybe so. So I really liked it. Uh, went and met with Mark and it was really funny because I'd never seen him before, never met him. And Gary was texting me prior, you know, get me all pumped up. And he's like, he's tiny. Like he's very short. Like don't stare he's really sensitive about it. So I'm all prepped to meet somebody that's like four, eight. And then this guy's like six, five. And I just started laughing right away. So I got the meeting off on a good foot. And that's how I got involved. <laughs> how about Gary? How did you get involved? How did I get involved? Um, I got a message on, uh, from Mark saying, you know, read this script, check out the role of Vincent. And uh, I said, sure, I'll read it quick i think i read it that very night um i've always wanted to work with mark so i was eager he caught me ready and i i literally when i got to i think it was page 31 uh when they get to that um what's it called the pie eating scene where in the cafe uh, the girl gives us a free pie i literally stopped reading sent him a message and said I'm already in because I just wanted to see what father Vincent was going to do and say next and then i just continued reading it and uh he said, all right, we're going, uh, I don't know, a month or two. I had to prep for it, and there we were. So we just went over how everyone got involved and everything. But, uh, uh, Mark, w- w- what made each character or which uh, each actor write for the roles? Um, okay, so to me, when you're casting, you're – you're not only casting someone who sort of like fits your original idea of the role, you're sort of casting someone who also brings something additional to the role that you didn't even write. Like, you know, they're bringing something that's, you know, it's their personality, it's their overall their overall vibe. You know, the first person I would say to cast was, for me, was Trista. And I already had worked with Trista before on something. And so when I conceived with Tom, the character of Mary Frances, I never really thought of anybody else for that role but Trista. So in a way, I'm kind of like basing it on, you know, that thinking Trista would be right for this role. I didn't really have anyone else. I mean, I did look at a few other people just thinking, well, I'll look at a few other people, but I was always thinking Trista would be right. There's just something about Trista's performance. Trista just kind of like, she sort of like embodies 
embodies her character to the point that it's like she's it's almost like the real twist. The real twist has been swallowed, and now there's the. Ca- I think Mark is uh, is frozen up on us. That's a he's great very, shot. He's very good at being very still. That's maybe a, yeah. <laughs> a little motion blur in there. So, uh, but Trista, you said you worked previously with Mark. So, uh, what was that on, and uh, how was that experience? I feel bad. I'm worried he's just going on and on about me being swallowed right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I did a little web series with Mark a long time ago. Um, yeah, and then we've continued to work together. I can only imagine what he's saying right now. <laughs> I'm sure it's all good. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we had done a web Very series. Very seamless show so far. <laughs> yeah, it's going swimmingly. <laughs> um so we had done a web series and it was not hard and we both kind of bonded over the fact that we both wanted to actually do horror. Uh, Luke and um, are you a horror movie fan too? Are you into horror? You say Luke? Yeah, Luke. Sorry. Yeah, I am. There's I'm I'm kind of into all genres. Uh, so there's sci-fi that I love, comedy, romance, horror. But yeah, I really I like scare. I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary, you into horror movies? Yeah, I love everything pretty much, but it's I like to find a good horror movie that makes me kind of want to cover my eyes or just feel like cringy or something. I just it's like another world, so I enjoy them very much. Uh, what interested you in the in the role of uh, Father Vincent? Just it was something so different, um, and it would be just thought it'd be cool to do it. Um, everything that he says and does it's hard to put into words there's this way when i when you read the script and you just respond to it and it was just one of those things that you feel like you have to do because i've read many scripts and sometimes i'm not that excited something about father vincent i needed to explore and then i was going through some personal stuff in my personal life and it was just um it was like a perfect transition i got to channel all that basically destroy myself mentally and physically and it, it was a perfect channel character to do it with and like you know, surrounded by a great cast made it everything easy so i don't know as soon as i knew these people were involved that was like how can you say now is that something that helps you um so you said you're going through personal issues at the time and you use that for your work does that help you in your personal life then after you're done with the role <laughs> uh I wouldn't say it helped me. Um, it's it's kind of maybe, I guess, maybe, maybe it worse. I don't know, but yeah. Um, it didn't make it better. I'd say that, but it didn't. Um, in the long run, it, I guess it did. It, during the time, no. Um, and shortly after, but a year or two later, uh, I mean, this is the happiest I've been in my whole entire life. So, if with those events didn't happen. And when, like back in the day, I would have walked away from a show or a TV show, which I have. I've walked away from network TV shows due to personal life. Purgatory Road proved to me that I can have chaos going on in my personal life and still stay focused and do what I got to do. So it actually probably helped it. In the, in the long term. So in the short term, though, is that ever harmful then to uh, use you know, real life uh, situations uh, for your art? 
I try not to, to be honest with you. Um, I try to not like I have a thing where it's, it's like Father Vincent's job, or it's Gary Karen's job to bring Father Vincent to life and get to know him. It's not Father Vincent's job to get to know Gary Karen's and, you know, explore his madness. So I, it was just one of those things I had to suppress. I had to suppress, but doing that made me channel the character more. It, it basically helped it. So, you know, that's why I wanted Luke there too, because I needed someone that knew me that could smack some sense into me if I started, you know, going off the wall or whatever. So, Mark would be too busy, you know, producing and, you know, Mark and, and uh, Luke was, uh, it was just comforting to have him there on a personal level and a professional level because you can count on him. So, it was good. Did you have to smack him around, uh, around at all, Luke? Yeah, but only when he asked me to. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't one of those things where I was stepping on anybody's toes. Like, he's like, rough me up. I'm like, okay. No, he's... It's, you know, it's one of those things where when you care about somebody, you know, and you care about the project and everybody involved, you, you just tell people through it. So, yeah, we all, we all need that now and again. Now, you guys knew each other, but had you worked together before? Uh, yes. Oh, hi, buddy. Hi, Mark. Sorry, Mark is returning. I had a panel blackout. <laughs> oh, really? Because um, you dressed like a priest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Gary and I had worked together. Um, we met, we both auditioned for a film, ended up being called uh, Lost in a Crowd. And we met, like, I think our first audition for that film, we auditioned like eight times for it and kind of just hit it off right away, <clears throat> excuse me, in the waiting room. And just both kind of zeroed in on each other. Like, I hope that guy gets the role because that'll, that'll make this experience worth it. Had a blast on that film and then ended up writing a film together that we ended up shooting. Oh, wow. uh, a road trip kind of family drama. And then we did this together. The road trip, did you drive around in a white van? <laughs> Close. That's the running <laughs> joke is we're known as the RV boys. It was a, a really shitty RV that broke down constantly. So, yeah, it's, yeah. there's a trend. Yeah. Uh, Mark, when you were interrupted, you were in the middle of talking about uh, Trista being swallowed into the role. Yeah, that's what I really liked about her, that she, um, because I'd worked with her on something else, um, which was a very different type of project. You know, she played more like a, so like a teenage, teenage girl in it. But she was just so good. She was so believable that I thought she'd be really good for this. And, you know, Tristan's got a really interesting sense of humour and like a very interesting kind of like, you know, dark aspect to her. But with that being dark, dark depressing, it's dark interesting. So uh, I thought she'd just bring a lot of personality to the role and, and just be able to totally embody, embody the role. With, with Gary, I'd met Gary. Um, I was actually helping a couple of people out doing a film, um, uh, Brian and Lowe, you know, um, Brian and, and Lowe, Avenue Bradley, and uh, I tried to met Gary. And uh, we sort of hit it off mostly on stuff that we were kind of like laughing, laughing about, you know, kind of hit it off on sense of humour. And again, um, thought Gary would be really good for this role. It's not that I'd seen him in a role like this before, but I just thought that physically he'd really be able to really be able to carry it off. And I really liked his vibe because the character's not a particularly likable character, but I thought that Gary would bring something to it that makes him sort of like not necessarily sympathetic, but just like you'd find him interesting enough to want to kind of like go through the process with him. And I thought that he just did that really brilliantly. And then when Gary suggested suggested Luke because it was really hard to find 
a Michael character, suggested Luke. You know, Luke, in a sense, is really the storyteller of the movie, in a sense. He's the audience for me. You know, the audience is Luke. So, you know, Luke's like more like the moral centre of the movie, if the movie has any kind of moral centre. It is Luke's character. So that's why Gary was the one who suggested, well, yeah, you should meet Luke. You know, so that's why, you know, I, I went and met him and I didn't need to audition him in the sense of, you know, um, do a test. I just knew from meeting him, he exuded a lot of warmth and I thought that he's really going to be able to bring humanity to the role, especially because he is, he is the audience. He's the audience's, he's like the, the friend of the audience. He's like the audience's proxy. You know, you know, the audience is in the story and they're sort of seeing things through the eyes of Luke's character. Thought, yeah, he could do that. He, he'd be able to be that storyteller because he's very likeable. He's a very likeable type of guy. He's got a good sense of humour. And I just think people would find, be able to empathise or even sympathise with a very difficult position he's in, which is supporting his brother. But as the film goes on, he starts, you know, he find, he's finding the acts of his brother more and more kind of repulsive, more and more, you know, difficult to accept. I thought, hey, Luke would be a person who'd be able to take the audience through that. And I, I think he did it really, really well. I think all three actors are just really um, absolute amazing, amazing performers. Yeah. <clears throat> That's interesting what you said there because when I was watching it uh, for the second time, that's what I find interesting about all three characters because they're all different uh, levels. Is uh, you know Luke's character, you know, he eventually knows stuff's wrong, but he said he's trying to support his brother and everything. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, the father character, he thinks what he's doing is completely right. And then, uh, and then Francis, uh, Mary Francis, she knows it's wrong and doesn't care. So it's like three different, you know. Yeah, you're right. Everybody in it sort of like thinks they're doing the right thing, and in a way, what's interesting, it's almost like like something that I would say is kind of like um, an example of that that was a bit of an inspiration was like, for example, like, you know, a suicide bomber. Suicide bomber basically wraps on a bomb, goes into a crowd, ends up not only killing themselves but a whole lot of other people, but they still believe that what they're doing is right. And it's so interesting, the idea that people who perform, you know, homicidal psychotic acts, that they still do it with complete sincerity, you know, because they believe, you know, that the end... It's not like they're, they're thinking to themselves, I'm evil, I want to do evil things. They believe, they believe in what they're doing. And every one of these characters in this does believe in what they're doing, which, which is, of course, much more interesting than someone who knows what they're doing is bad. Um, that's, that's not quite as interesting in, in, this, in this context. And, you know, I think it makes it more dangerous if someone thinks they're doing uh, what's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. And when you're telling a movie where essentially everyone in some way is connected with murder you've really got to be able to differentiate the characters because otherwise, you know, theoretically, you could say, well, there's no sympathetic characters here because they're all murderers. I mean, even like Luke's character is still an accessory to murder. So the challenge as a filmmaker or as the writer of, the, of it is that you still have to go, okay, so where is the audience identification going to be in the sense that there's got to still be differentiation between the murderers? That's important to it's important to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Luke's uh, girlfriend in the movie that she's like the the total innocent uh, yeah. person, the character of the whole film. Ruby, oh god. <laughs> yeah. What, what was she like to work with, Luke? She was really great. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. She's obviously a really good actress. Um, 
got along with everybody on set. And just, I think, you know, to what Mark was saying earlier, or like, like you just alluded to the innocent, like just a, a warmth to her and especially in her performances where you, you really kind of hate when you see where the movie's going. You're like, uh, no, not her. You know what I mean? Because that's kind of Mark and Tom did a really good uh, job tying that into that's the final straw for my characters. Like, I, you know, that's the one thing I wanted in life was to be clean, like innocent and be with her and have good things. And then my brother takes it away from me. So it was a pivotal role, I think. And I think, I think she did a great job. Yeah. Your brother took it away from you entirely. Yeah. I would say he's <laughs> such a POS. <laughs> sort of enabled by Mary Frances. Yeah, let's not let her off the hook either. No, I that's mean, right. Let's be honest. She was she was the I final guess spark. I'm complicit slightly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that like uh, for for you and Trista when you start to play off each other? You know, trying to vie for attention of of Gary's character. Go ahead, Trista. Or the loyalty of his character. Maybe. Oh. um... Yeah, I don't think that you register really as, like, competition to me. <laughs> I would agree with that statement 100%. She, I think, thinks nothing of Michael. Like, he's not even a, a road bump or a speed bump to her. I guess that's proper English. Yeah, she, she's a, he's a toy to her is the way I saw it. Like, no real thought about him at all. Like, I agree with that. And, and, so, and, and the, the irony, of course, being that, in, in one line of dialogue, Luke actually saves Trista's life that then comes back, which is a line where he tells her, don't mention anything about stealing. That's the one line that if he hadn't said that, Trista probably would have ended up dead. <laughs> like Mary mm-hmm. Francis. And, and I always find it interesting when single lines are, can, can, can determine an entire fate of a character. And that line is the line that pretty much, ironically, Michael saves Trista's life and ends up and ends up basically with a short end of the stick from doing something that was that was sincerely humanist. Would you take that a little bit further and say though that like my own humanity saved me because I did that good deed? Then everything else unfolds yeah. and I'm able to finally get out. Yes. Yeah. Because that line, in a way allowed her to sort of become part of the, you know, to, you know, sort of to become part of their um, crusade, kind of like, you know, join the, sort of like join, join the church. But yeah, you're right. At the same time, the fact that you're never totally, you're never totally corrupted is also in a way that ends up being the death of the death of Trista, because you, you, in a way you're very, you end up being at the same time quite, quite consistent. Mm. And that's always interesting in human behavior, you know, that, you know, to show that con- consistency is really something that I think we all admire in people. We admire consistency. You know, that's almost more than we admire other things because consistency is how relationships are built. And he's very consistent. He's very morally consistent and becomes even more focused, becomes even more focused on doing the right thing until the, um, up, up, to the very, uh, up to the very end. That's a good point. I agree. So, uh, Mark said that he had, you know, grew up uh, Catholic. Um, Gary, did you do you have any background in, in any type of religion? Uh, you know, when you're playing the character and you're doing a sermon, and just uh, you know, n- being familiar with the biblical quotes. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. I think it was Catholic or Christian. I'm not quite sure, <laughs> so that might answer your question right there. But I mean, I, my parents would put me in 
you know, we go to church every Sunday. I think all of probably up until I was 10 years old, I remember being at churches very, very, very often. Um, but as I got older, just never really went. I've been, been a few times here and there, but mainly as a child. Hi, this is Michael Ironside, and you're listening without your head. So did um, for, for, for to play the character, especially like the sermon role, um, did, was there anything like you drew? Did you watch anything or was that, was there any I inspiration did. for that? Yeah. I mean, I'd study. I just wanted to, what's the word that I'm looking for? Anytime you take on a role, you try to put yourself in that mood, that, that mind frame. So I would watch preachers from, from Billy Graham to everything to, to the good guys, the bad guys with everything with reputation. I just wanted to see what felt real and I didn't want to mimic. I just kind of, then I would kind of just read my dialogue and see what felt natural. And I remember talking to Tom because I think Tom wrote that particular part for what he said. So I kind of wanted to see what he went with, uh, what he was feeling. And he kind of just said that he's, this guy's speaking. I mean, he's speaking passionately because there's, 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 I tried it from by myself, like 10 different ways, just to see, because you can watch, there's so many different sermons that do it different ways, but the way that I kind of, ended up doing it was I felt what they were going for and it felt natural. Um, and I want, this guy is not a great person. So, and he's not really trying to hide it either. It's in, like I said, he feels what he's doing is right. And the way he goes about it is what feels right. And I mean, if you look at some of the words that are, he's saying are, I can't even remember having these heathens or whatever. I mean, it's, I don't remember being in a church hearing a guy speak like this. So I, and I thought that would be kind of interesting just to play something that's memorable. It's kind of what I was going for. Did you suggest anything, Mark, that for him to watch specifically for the, for, uh, for those? uh, No, I, I don't think so. I think it was just more understanding, like, you know, what his character wanted. Um, Just more, it was more just understanding that, because he, in a way, he's sort of like in the writing. I mean, he's based definitely on the more kind of foreign brimstone kind of you know preachers that 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 are you know that were very that was very much more common even in the Catholic Church was very common in like you know the 30s to the 50s. I mean, my my mum used to tell me that you'd have priests pretty much screaming at people who came into church late and almost like casting them out of the church. People who'd like been there for 20 years, but she they crucify someone because they were five minutes late. You know, and so I, yeah. for me, my conversations with Gary were, you know, pretty much always about like, you know, what the character wants and just kind of understanding the more kind of the, the duality and his own inner conflict. You know, I mean, Gary's kind of also kind of at war with himself. You know, Father, Father Vincent's at war with himself. In a sense, everyone is at war with themselves except for Mary Frances. She's almost yeah. like she's, she's the one who's purely embracing her nature and she has no issues at all, which is probably why she's the most relaxed character. And, and she's very, she's just very pure in that way. Whereas the others are really sort of like at war with themselves, you know, which is where, I mean, that's where your conflict starts, you know, starts with your own war. And I think that's what Gary and I discussed, you know, in leading up to it. And, you know, it was more like, I don't, I don't want to overburden actors with like too many references. I mean, I do it with music, but I don't really do it so that, you know, it's more like I will usually send actors um, a, a selection of music for each character. And I think I did that with Gary. I think I did that with each person. 
Um, but that's more to kind of capture a tone because I think music can sometimes convey something that words can't convey. So I know I did that, and uh, and again, but it's just in, it's an intuitive thing. Thinking, well, this kind of music somehow is like his inner life. I mean, because this is what we're interested in. It's the inner life of the characters. It's about human behaviour. That's 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 what it's about. Uh, what was uh, some of the most challenging things uh, to play that character, Trista? Um. So I usually try to develop an arc. Um, that's one of the first things I, I do when I start to get to work. And that was really challenging with Mary Frances because she is so, um, like Mark was saying, she's not really at war with herself. She's not. So how do you develop an arc with a character that is almost mythical, right? She's just, she, not to... Uh, glamorize serial killers but to me i was like she's so cool i i want to play her but how do i humanize her because obviously it's not like i really know anyone like her um so that was tricky for me developing an arc and, and what i kind of decided was that she's uh getting by uh, she's doing all these things as a means to an end, right? Because she's grifting as she's killing people. And, and at some point, she realizes that she's enjoying it, that it's not just um, a means to get by. It's something that she is enjoying. And and uh, she has this, like, bloodlust, this bloodthirst. So that, to me, was how I had an arc for her I was like oh she's doing this sort of in denial thinking she has to do it and then at some point she realizes it's something that she really enjoys and that she's going to continue to do um and then just um technically speaking I had not done any um sort of nudity on film or in theater before and I actually turned down the role at first because of it um and so it took me, you know, I had a long talk with my dad and um, I wanted to make sure he would be cool with it. And that um, it was a big personal choice for me to make. Um, and so that was something I had to think about for a long time, too. Has he seen the movie? No, he wants to. Um, I keep telling him not to. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> uh, I, and then today my... Um, brother sent me a picture of his like baby like with the movie in it in her like mouth and i was like don't show that to the baby <laughs> i didn't realize it was big with babies this <laughs> it's huge yeah <laughs> we have a, we have a bunch in the chat room here <laughs> uh, uh, that no. could always, could, can that be a quote big with babies <laughs> <laughs> i'll look it on the poster art i think yeah. <laughs> Uh, I noticed um, there's interesting lighting, uh, especially in the um, the confessionals, because uh, you used a lot of the gold and purple like you use in the um, on the cover art. Yeah, well, the main challenge with it was that because a real confessional, I'm not sure if you've ever been in one, but mm. I I've been in plenty. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm, it's not to say I'm full of sin, but I've. I was in a lot of confessionals like throughout my you know, teenage years. And, um, and most confessionals are completely, in, are completely dark. They'll sometimes have like a light that comes on while you're kneeling. 
but usually they're dark. So the challenge here was like, oh, I don't want to have them in a dark confessional. Yeah, make an intro. You know, so yeah. it was just like, well, let's come up with something that's really a stylized version of a confessional um, where we're punching light through the confessional, through the actual bars. So you get the, um, you get the patterning on the faces, but it was more having that contrast between like the gold and the purple, which was kind of like, again, what's going on in the confessional. It's like the light and the dark are constantly crossing over, constantly at war with each other. That, I just, I, I, I wasn't going for reality with that. You know, I'm you know, going, for, going for something that's an emotion. You know, it's an emotion with the lighting rather than say, apart from the fact that you can illuminate them. But yeah, but illuminating them in an interesting way. So yeah, we, we tested a few different colours and filters and that's the one we originally, that's the one we eventually arrived at because that confessional was built for the movie and it was rebuilt as well because the, the guy who built it, the first build, and I'd said to him, I, I need it pretty large. He delivered initially like something that was really small, and I'm like, what the hell? It was like, like I can barely even move a camera inside there now. And he said, well, this is what a confessional would be. And I said, I don't want what a confessional would be. You know, we need something that's actually got to be shot, and we're going to move cameras in there and that kind of thing. But, yeah, I thought, like, um, I mean, the guy who shot it, Andrew Giannetta, a very talented guy working with a gaffer named Randy, Randy King from Mississippi. So, you know, we all just had these great conversations about, like, how the film would be lit. And, you know, I just didn't want almost any part of it to be something that's just lit in a kind of like a, a common sort of reality way. You know, everything I wanted to sort of like a very enhanced kind of like um, almost like film noirish in colour kind of like tones for the movie and sometimes to not include at all, but other tones to actually like emphasize. Uh, oh, Luke, um, you know, obviously you're on the movie when you're making it, but uh, when you see the finished film and you see things like that, the, the lighting and, uh, and how it's edited, what, what did you think of the, the movie? I was really happy with the look of it. Like they did such a good job, like with the, the atmosphere and the lighting itself. I, I thought it was really creepy and I really like exactly what Mark's talking about. Like, him being able to go past like, well, this is what it actually is. Well, no, what's best for the story and what's going to be best for the audience. What's going to be creepiest. Like uh, the confessional, those are some of my favorite shots. The shots where I'm going out and burying little pieces of people. I love the way that was lit. That was a very exorcist feeling to me. Um, so yeah, I was very happy with the, the production value, how it looked and how it was put together. I was, I was really impressed. Uh, speaking of the body parts, all the gore and the body parts look, uh, look very good. Uh, who was in yep. charge of that? Oh, that was um, um, that was Mark Marcus Coke. Marcus Coke's done a lot of horror stuff, you know, over the years. Also working with Kate, I think her name's is Kat. 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 Mm-hmm. Kat, Kat. Oh yes. Um, yeah, I I knew Marcus. He worked on a lot of the guinea pig films, and okay. uh, he made he's made some of his own films too. Uh, yeah, had a lot of conversations with him prior to the movie, and it was pretty much there's going to be a lot of body parts. I want very realistic looking um, because you know hands get chopped off. I mean, the symbolism of the hands is constant in the movie, so I don't want to have body parts that are, that we have to sort of like you know sort of shoot around or just suggest. So. He did a lot of castings. I think he created about 100, 100 feet, 100, you know, hands. And, yeah, I mean, I thought he did a really – I thought both of them did, like, a really amazing job on the movie. And, I mean, at the same time, you also have to be very careful about how you light effects. 
you know, you don't overlight um, when you've got things like body parts, you know, because that's part of the magic. Part of the magic is also the way that you light it. And, I mean, anyone would say that. I mean, you don't necessarily expect any special prosthetic effect to hold up to, like, super harsh lighting. That's why you don't do that. You know, you, you have to think about the way it's got to be lit um, because it is a magic show. You know, movies are a magic show, so the angles, the lighting, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, what they created, even in close-up when I'd hold it and pick it up, it's really realistic. You know, you know, a couple of people even visited the set and they were like, oh, you know, like none of it looked even fake closer. You know, it was like, it looked like, looks like something that had just been freshly, freshly cut off. I mean, you've got to love that. Yeah, do you have any of them in those crates there behind you, those bins? You know, I, I do have some. Um, they're not necessarily in those crates. That's other parts. <laughs> no, okay. That's other, other parts. Body parts there. But, yeah, but all the parts are stored somewhere, you know, for when they may be required. Right, right. It's, yeah. it's very ominous when they may be required. But uh, you never know. <laughs> uh, Gary, what did you think of the finished movie? Uh, I was blown away, to be honest with you. The whole look, sound of it. Um, you know, that's the thing is when you sign on to a project, especially in the indie world, we're at the mercy of the overall production. I mean, we can go do our jobs and hopefully that turns out. But I mean, Mark knew Mark invited me over to his, his place and I watched it and I was just like, wow. I was like, Luke, get over here. <laughs> you know, he drove in and it just looked amazing. You know, you're not used to seeing that um, from top to bottom. And he delivered it from principal photography to the end, I think within five months of it can be start to finish. Um, but I wanted to reiterate real quick on Kat Brenier is I was going to recommend her for this movie. Um, and I would hit her up and I hit told her about Mark and Mark's like, Oh, I got somebody. And she goes, well, I think I'm, she's like, I'm doing a movie in Mississippi already randomly. And then she was going with Marcus. It's just a small world because I worked with her on daylight's end and she did an amazing job on that movie. And, um, so it was just kind of you know, a small world, but yeah, the special effects, the, everything, literally top to bottom, I was impressed with. Like, literally everything. Uh, Trista, what did you think of the finished film? I agree. I mean, wouldn't it be terrible if we were all like, it was really bad? So you tell me <laughs> that's a terrible question to ask, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I'm so proud of this film. And, and to piggyback on what Gary is saying, as an actor, you're so vulnerable. You know, you show up, you do your job, and, and you just, you don't know if it's going to be something you're proud of. And um, I'm super proud of this film. And like I had mentioned earlier, it was such a big decision for me to take the film, and that's even more vulnerable. Um, so to be able to be so proud of it, and it's actually, it's gotten, uh, I've, for me personally, um, for a film to be successful, a, a lot of times not only I love it, which I truly love this film, um, I think it, it it appeals to my sense of humor, for sure. Um, I find a lot of humor. In I, w- I have actually in my notes, um, there was more humor in it than, uh, than I remember the first time I watched it. I think there's Thank obvious you. humor, like talking about the, uh, the goat. Uh, but I think the, overall, there's a lot more uh, dark, hu- uh, dark comedy in the movie than uh, than I I thought the first time I watched it. I think so, and it's also um, I've I've booked more films as a result of it, which is always something I measure personal success by. If a film comes out 
if it perpetuates my career, you know, that's always super helpful. It's a great calling card to have. It's something I'm proud to show people, proud to be a part of. Yeah. And you even had a, a good one-liner. Uh, Checkout is at 11. So. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is a good line. Yeah, There's a lot of humor in the film, and it's definitely my kind of dark, deadpan. Yeah. Uh, you said, um, you know, you had not done nudity in a movie before. Um, so some you're worried about taking the role, but when you were actually filming that, what, what was that like? So when I was actually filming it, yeah, I was very comfortable with it. So obviously I have a lot of friends that are actors and actresses, and um other people have different parameters that make them comfortable. And um, I d hadn't wanted to do any nudity personally I, because I had promised my dad I wouldn't. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I am judgmental or not supportive of other people making personal choices. Um, but for me, the reason that I uh, changed my mind is because uh, I felt like I got a, a chance to make a uh, completely a uh, different character from myself and uh, a chance to be a lead on, on such a cool, unique film that made sense to me. And um, I don't know if, if I were just showing up for me personally for one day as just um, a naked body or something, I'm not sure I would have been comfortable with that. But because it felt very artistically fulfilling, um, I was happy to be on board. And then when the on the day it was such a comfortable uh experience that uh yeah i i, I was um i want to say exhilarating but not because i was naked for the world um but but because it was such a fun scene and very tastefully done and it was cool to be covered in blood and yeah. and i was very inspired like you guys were saying with all of the different lights and um, camera angles and i had known mark for a long time i'm very um comfortable in his competence you know he's a true cinephile and he has impeccable taste and he said very tasteful you do like a lot of blood in the film I, what, what was the blood made out of i don't know mark do you know uh i think it's usually a combination of um food dyes um caro caro syrup to give it sort of like a a consistency but yeah i mean it's actually probably the secret that uh marcus and 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 kate will um maybe take to the grave i'm i'm not really sure exactly because i usually usually affects people they all have their own they they usually always have their own recipes you know um and everyone's like a little different i was very happy with the consistency of this one i mean it, it, it is a big deal like because when you sometimes someone will do will do some blood and you go uh, it's too orange or it hasn't quite got the right no, the blood looks really good in the movie yeah thank, well thank you that means that means a lot because yeah because you're creating something that comes out of it a body so you can't be using the real thing uh, well certainly not for long you know and so it's it is really important that it's, it's sort of like because as soon as the blood's wrong then people are thinking about the blood and like it, it takes them out of the, it takes them out of the experience. You know, as does if you got the music, you know, I've got wrong music or something. It's the same thing. You know, you don't want things that, that will take people out of the experience. You always want to have elements that are bringing them into the experience. So they're the kind of choices that you're making all the time. You know, to keep people involved with what's going on rather than the mechanics of what's going on. Um, what was uh, where did the, the the Marty character come from? The the radio DJ. 
this is an interesting part of the movie. It's not necessarily a big part of the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so the character really came from, um, I'd say it was inspired by uh, George Romero's Martin because I, I love the scenes where Martin is talking to the DJ every now and then. He doesn't do it probably even as often as, um, as Trista does, but I like the idea that someone that she, because the thing is she has no one to speak to. Right, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. she's got no one to. We don't. There's no way because she doesn't have a best friend. She has no best friends. I mean, there's even a line where Luke actually jokes about what she has friends, you know. And um, so she doesn't have anybody to to give us a sense of what's going on inside her head, another side of her. So it made sense to like have a character like that because when we're when we're doing it, we were thinking, who could she be speaking to? You know, I mean we went through, could she speak to a corpse? You know, does she talk to the corpses afterwards, whatever, but that doesn't really make sense in the same way. But then it kind of became a good little um, uh, piece to use it as that, because then you then have the scene where, where Luke connects her, you know, that he's listening and he hears her on the radio and he knows that it's her. But yeah, just really liked the idea. And I loved how she related to him. And it's interesting how we found him too, because we were looking for a location, which was the original house. We lost the original house because we found it was too far away. And so someone said, oh, I know a guy at the radio station and he knows the area really well. So I went and met him. And while we're t- I'm talking to him, you know, he's a guy who owns a radio station and is on air at the local radio station. And I said to him, hey, um, do you know anyone who like would be interested in like um, being like a radio guy and stuff? And he goes... But what about me? And where I'm like, have you ever done anything like this before? And I and he said, well, no. Um, he goes, I've done a little bit on camera, you know, just documentary type of stuff. And I said, well, can I do a little test? And that's how he came to be. So the guy on the radio is the radio guy in that town, and it's shot in the same town where Oh Brother, where Art Thou was shot. It's the same town. And um, so the radio station, um, the town that you see in that is the town where we shot, which is called Canton. And we used his radio station. And the weird thing was the call sign that's in the movie is the is his actual call sign for that station. Oh, really? he, he wanted us to use it because usually you would come up with a fictitious one. Yeah. But um, he said, no, I really want you to use the real call sign of the radio. So that's how we... So that's how we came across him. But I really liked his character, and I, I love Mary Frances's interactions with him. Mm-hmm. It's, almost um, like a, it's almost like a love affair. Uh, your co-writer, uh, Tom, uh, had you worked with him before? Yes. I've known Tom um, probably for about seven or eight years, and we've made about now about four or five movies together. The first one was Pond Scum, which isn't actually out yet. I mean, it's finished, but it's not out for all kinds of reasons. Um, we we met on that and pretty much we sort of like met and found that we had like a commonality um, in subject matter. And he's also um, he's also either financed or been one of the financiers in the movies as well. His background is a lawyer. He's actually he's still a lawyer. So he basically is a lawyer now slash filmmaker slash actor. He's also the guy that plays the sheriff in um, in the movie. That's also Tom. So the guy, you know, who um, pulls pulls the boys over when they've just killed the, killed the girl inside the, inside the van. That's him too doing his cameo. And in another movie that I just finished painkiller, he's got a bigger role in that, in, um, in, in that one as well. But yeah, I mean, we, 
we I think we make we have a good partnership in writing that he'll he'll write some scenes, I'll write some scenes, I'll kind of structure it out and then he'll, he'll I said you do those ones, I'll do those ones. Then we send it back and forth and do rewrites of each other's work and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it works really well and we tend to have a similar kind of sensibility. You know, he doesn't like all the kind of films that I like, uh, but at the same time, we, we definitely have common things that we like about human behaviour, and that's kind of like what kind of drew us together um, to kind of team up on some of these movies. Before this one, we'd made a film called Stress to Kill. That was the one we'd made before this film. Okay. <clears throat> is that uh, available? Uh, where is that available? Yeah. Yeah, um, Stress to Kill is on Tubi TV, um, on, on Blu-ray, on DVD, um, on Amazon Prime. So, yeah, you can watch that as well. So that's, 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 that's very available. And that's Bill, that's Bill Oberst, who's in that one, and um, Amanda Sante, who plays like the, um, the sort of, um, not really the villain, but sort of like plays the, um, you know, the opposing, the opposing force in that movie. Um, how did um, Purgatory Road when, when it was first when it first came out? How was, did it go to festivals or anything? Yeah, it went to a few festivals. It didn't go to a lot of festivals. I mean, I think we got into about four or five festivals. I mean, I submitted it. I mean, I just don't know whether it was you know it wasn't the type of thing they're interested. In. I know at one point someone was say, sort of said to me, "Well, we're interested in more kind of supernatural, kind of very straight kind of horror stuff." And, I mean, this is not really supernatural. And I guess even, for example, the UK distributor of the movie, uh, Julian Richards, who's um, um, from a company called Jinga, even he said to me, it's not really a horror film completely. It's also a crime story as well. And I guess he's right. So I think in some ways maybe some festivals couldn't quite pigeonhole it as horror or is it crime or whatever. I mean... I'm sort of used to that because I think I always make films that are kind of hybrid films and more like mixing of genres. But yeah, I mean, we, we got in the American Horrors Festival. We actually got into Monster Fest and did really well in Monster Fest in Australia, like got really good, um, um, good reaction there and won a few prizes also at the Melbourne Underground Film Festival as well. So, I mean, eventually the film got seen, but, you know, I can't say, oh yeah, it was just embraced by every festival. Um, yeah, it was. And I think it's sort of like, you know, I think it's, like not necessarily a film that's kind of got mainstream appeal in the sense that it's got the kind of regular kind of like mainstream tropes of a horror film. It's kind of a bit different and it's not necessarily set out to scare you in the traditional sense, like, you know, big sort of, you know, jump scares. It's not really a jump scare kind of film. I mean, it it is a film more about characters um, and more about really bizarre kind of human behavior, but it's got horror elements like, you know, I mean, a lot of murder, got cannibalism it's got like yeah like and of course like mary francis is a complete nut job um and then also um gary's gary's character is yeah is, is, gary's character is the wicked is the wicked murderous priest you know so it's got all those kind of horror horror elements to it but i guess some people don't necessarily see it as a straight horror and you know that's that's fine. I mean, once it's out there, it's like having a kid. You know, people will make up their opinions about whether, whether your kid's a mutant or a freak or, or a great guy. It's a really strange way to describe having a child. but Did any of you see it with an audience? I mean, I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, well, Mark and I were at the... Uh, film festival in phoenix with it yeah 
And that was fun because Echoes was there as well. So Echoes of Fear played and then um, Purgatory Road played. Um, and that was, that was a great time, Mark. Yeah. I thought yeah. that's yeah. the only time I saw it with an audience. What's up? This is James D. Lamont from It Came From The Flyweight Productions inviting you to listen to Culture Shock every second Monday right here on WithoutYourHead.com. Yeah. Except there was like a small child in the audience. <laughs> That's right. And I wanted child, to though. go away. <laughs> well, 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 maybe that's another extension of, of it being big with babies. It's also big with babies. <laughs> really, yeah. And we kind of like so that's children. when you started to find the audience for the movie. Yeah. I mean, I saw it in Australia at Monster Fest. I went oh, wow. back to Australia for the screening at Monster Fest, and that was like a packed, a packed theatre for the film. And, uh, yeah, that was... I mean, it's always it's always a unique experience when you see it with a huge audience because you feel the ripples through the audience immediately whether they're liking it. It's such a strange thing that because horror films are not, you know, in a comedy people laugh so you know it's working. Whereas when you do a horror, especially when it's this kind of one that doesn't have jump scares, you sort of, in a way, still go, is it working? But sometimes you just get this feeling it's really kind of bizarre. Like you kind of go, I'm feeling a good vibe from the movie, you know, and that's how I got with it. And people like the humour, I think the humour is where you really know it's working because people sometimes laugh at stuff. And it's, it's interesting, in different countries, you know, sometimes, you know, in America there'd be a scene where there's no laugh. But then in Australia, they laughed at something. But then in Australia, there'd be something where they're not laughing. Then in the US screen, they're, they're, they're laughing. So humor is very, very kind of like regional as well. So I like the fact that once they start laughing, I think you've kind of got them because I think humor is an incredible icebreaker that, that if people are laughing, and it is really important to have laughs. I mean, definitely as a writer on this with Tom, you know, the humor aspect is so important because it's, it's adding contrast and you need it to kind of break up the you need it to kind of break up the grim elements because otherwise if you don't have a little bit of um, you know you know I guess the word is Good Friday or Easter Sunday whatever you want to call it if you don't have that the film can just be like wallpaper just the same patterning for like 90 minutes and that's not good so you want to have rips in the wallpaper you want to have suddenly you plunge through the wallpaper and do something else and I think that's what both the um, the humour does, and also the music too. You know, I think the music does the same thing. That And that's, you really feel that with an audience. And I, it was a really great screen. Afterwards, people came up to me and said, I really got this, I really like that. And, um, yeah, you I mean, you feel like you've done a, jo- a good job because, I mean, I'm not the kind of person who's going to make a film and go, oh, this is an amazing movie. I mean, you let other people, you let other people decide that. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not about me saying it. It's about someone saying it worked for me or I laughed. I mean, that's, that's, just, I mean, admit, that's just great. Just to get a laugh is fantastic. Uh, Timothy Chismar here in the chat room. Um, he says, uh, for Trista, we know you love horror, but what other dream role would you love to play? Sincerely president of the Trista Robinson fan club. Oh, Tim, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, so I, Lately, I've been thinking I'd like to play a blind woman uh, because I've played a deaf woman in a film called The Human Race. And um, that was so educational for me. And um, yeah, lately, because the world is crazy, I try to remind myself to be grateful and how fortunate I am. And I think I would learn a lot uh, 
by playing a blind woman. But thanks for tuning in, Tim, and thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, Luke, do you have a dream role? Oh, sorry, that's a and good I'm question. Gonna start, uh, I'm going to yeah. start your fan club. Yeah, I appreciate that. You can be the president and its sole <laughs> member. Thank you. <laughs> um, God, dream role. I've always loved, like, well, you have one of my favorites right behind you, the thing. Um, I'd love to play a, any type of role in a movie like that, where you blend, the, like, the seamless blending of sci-fi and horror. So maybe something like the Terminator or the thing. Be the, be the badass in that. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary, do you have a dream role? I don't know if there's one in particular. There's so many. Um, but there's one thing that does pop in my mind. Um, it's kind of where I'm not quite sure what it would be. It's just basically the audience would have to watch it where you're thinking something's going on, but it's all ends up being in the mind. And at the end of the movie, I want it to be where not just for the main character, I'm kind of writing something for it and I'm hoping I can execute it, which is why I'm saying it. But um, at the end of the day, just have so much clarity as a human, um, as a, it just has so much growth. So when the audience watches it, they're like, they learn from it, they grow from it and they talk about it because it, it just, I don't know. So, you know, we all go through things in life and I want it to be something like that where it's this crazy roller coaster, almost like a vanilla sky. If that makes just to put it out there, something like that meets inception would be uh, something that might makes my mouth water. Uh, yeah. Not easy to make, but you know, you said you were writing something. Do you plan on, in being in the movie? Uh, I mean, I would love to play this particular thing. I mean, I'm writing many things, um, and there's some that I'm like, well, I, I like this guy to play it or something. But this one particular thing, um, it's mm-hmm. kind of titled White Padded Room tentatively right now. Um, and I think that that would that would be something I'd really love to make. And it's in this genre vein of Vanilla Sky meets Inception meets the almost small town drama, too. Kind of. Uh, let's see. Tim also wants to know from Mark's, Mark, uh, your film creates a universe that lives and brutalizes according to its own rules. As a true talented filmmaker, what other filmmakers do you feel have a strong artist eye or vision? Uh, well, oh, I'd say like um, uh, Del Toro. I really like I like Del Toro's work. It's very, very focused. Uh, Catherine, Catherine Brulee, the French, the French director. Um, Kenji Fukasaku, which was the, which he's, he's dead now, but his last film was Battle Royale, but he made about 50 other movies. I love, just love his work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I also tend to often do this like individual films, you know, um, often of, of directors who've or sometimes even just made one or two, but I mean, I just like films that are, I just like films that, um, I like films that really have a really good blend of, um, you know, have a strong music component too. You know, I mean, I, 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 I should just add that I thought that the um, Glenn Gabriel who did the score for this movie was um, amazing, you know, did, and that's, it's like the um, third time I've worked with, worked with Glenn. I thought his work is amazing, but yeah, um, I like, 
I mean, there's so many directors I admire. I mean, of course, Scorsese. I mean, I mean, nearly everyone likes Scorsese's work because it's just, well, because he's just a very pure filmmaker. You know, you, you sort of get it. I feel like he's got my attitude of I'll just do this until I die. And if I end up on the street, homeless, making movies, and then I die, it's fine. You know, like, you know, I'll just keep doing it. And I, I like people with that kind of attitude to, to art, you know, like, you know, who just kind of like, they just feel like they must do it. You know, that's why I like a filmmaker like that. And also, um, Kenito Shindo, who made um, Onibaba. I love, I love Kenito Shindo's work. Um, you know, and horror work like Lucio, Lucio Fulci, like Zombie, The Beyond, you know, that type of thing. I love that. Love the early, especially the early John Carpenter, but also love Christine. I think Christine's an amazing movie. Um, the Thing, of course, um, you know, The Fog, Halloween and all that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I love Chinese filmmakers too. I like, I, I like a lot of, um, like John Woo. I love John Woo as well, I, especially his early films, like Bullet in the Head, Hard Boiled, that, you know, those kind of movies are just, you know, really amazing. I mean, I could talk about that, for, could talk about that forever, but I won't, I, won't, I won't bore you. Thank you. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I spared you, Luke. <laughs> well, I mentioned on Facebook that you can see Purgatory Road on Tubi, but it, it's available on, on many different platforms and physical copies. So, where can you get uh, Purgatory? Yeah, Road? well, it's actually about it's it's kind of like coming out everywhere now. Like in the US, it's on Amazon Prime, it's on Tubi, it's also on Blu-ray through Unearthed and DVD. But in the UK, it's about to come out everywhere in about, I think, about a week or so through Jinga Films. They've also placed it recently in New Zealand and also Australia. It's also out in Germany. It's called The Priest in Germany, and it's got a slightly different artwork. Jinga also came up with different artwork for the UK and the New Zealand uh, release, which is like a hand holding rosary beads. So I thought that was a very interesting um, you know, decision to do that, to go that way. And Julian, who's at Jinga, I think has done a really great job of kind of like getting it into like a lot of platforms. So it's not as hard to find now as it was, but it's, it's been a little bit of a slow crawl into distribution. But distribution's like that these days. I mean, I'm involved in that side of it as a filmmaker because I'm also producing the films. So in, in, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, you place it and then you sort of work out who you want to go with. And sometimes you even put it with someone who doesn't do it so well, then you take it back and then put it out again. And so it's a constant uh, process of like um, trial and error, um, getting getting a film you know broadly distributed, which is why it's fantastic that everybody came here today because the film was made now about what almost like three years or even longer ago now, and it, but it does take a long time to like to to get it out there. But hopefully, people um, if they enjoy it, they'll uh, they'll write about it and. Um, tell their friends. I mean, it's really important. Yeah. Have you noticed over time um, in finding an audience? Yeah. Um, you mean as a filmmaker myself? Yeah. You know, that you, you put your movie out, like you said, three years ago and you know, it, it gets to different platforms and it, yeah. you know, it builds an audience over time. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, it's definitely finding an audience. I'm having people contacting me who've seen it, who almost surprised that they even saw it, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, people then start to like then look at the other stuff that you've done. You know, which is which is really good. You know, because everyone wants everyone wants their work to be seen. You know, whether you're an actor or a director or you know, what, what, production designer, makeup artist, whatever. You, you you don't want it sitting on a shelf somewhere. You know, not doing anything. So, the more widely it can be seen, the better it is not only for your career 
but just a better, I think it even is just for yourself to, to at least know that something that you worked on is being seen because that's why you make it. You make it to share stories. You know, it's a sharing of the stories that is what really drives you and you have to kind of feel that you have a story that's, that's unique enough to, to take up, you know, 90 minutes of someone's time. So, you know, that's why it legitimises it when people say, I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, I just feel humbled by that. You know, when someone says, I really like the movie, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not the person who kind of goes, well, of course you did. <laughs> no, I, I'm like, oh, really? Oh, well, that's great. You know, because you just never really know. Everyone's got different tastes, you know, so you never really know whether it's going to, I mean, even my, even my mum watched this movie, which is kind of bizarre, and I think she liked it. Mine did too, actually. Yeah, it didn't have a lot of swearing, so that's fine. And so my mum, my mum hates swearing, so you can make a really my mum does. Yeah, right. Yeah, my mum just hates swearing, so you can make a love story with swearing, and she wouldn't like that. Where she, where she liked this, and it doesn't have much swearing. And I think Michael says, "Fuck once." Uh, and that was actually deliberate, and I did that on the on the other film I just finished too. I used to be a lot bigger on sort of like a lot of swearing and having characters, whereas now I, it's more about one. Well, now let's pick a moment to use it. Um, obviously, unless you've got characters who just do swear all the time, but I think it's more effective when you just go, well, let's have him use it here. I agree. Uh, let's not just have it as part of the fabric because then it sort of can lose its impact anyway, unless that's what you're trying to do. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about a movie is that. Um, you can never really predict how it's going to how it's going to be accepted. Uh, Timothy also wants to know um, what happened to the novelization. He, he, I guess there was a novelization that was going to come out. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, let's just say that that is still that is still coming out. I just had to make it a few. Um, I've had to make a few changes changes to it. It's, it's a little complicated, but yeah, that that will be coming out um, the in the first quarter of next year. The novelization will be coming out. Interesting. And that's going to have, if you already know the movie, the first third of the novelization is all the events before the movie starts. Okay. So you're going to find out how pretty much the early story of, um, of the two brothers, also the early story of Mary Francis as well. So, yeah, so it's not just going to be like, um, in a way, like a, a novel version of the right. film. It's, it's going to have a lot of extra stuff. Interesting. I mean, that used to be like a normal thing, but uh, back in the seventies and the eighties, they would, you know, do yeah, novelizations right. and, of everything. And interestingly, a lot of novelizations were often written based on first drafts. So sometimes you'd read a novelization of a, and you'd go, "Gee, the novelization is quite different." Well, the reason was is because they they they'd start the novelization on the first draft so that the lead time would be right. Because by the time the film comes out, the, you know, they want to have the the novelization coming out at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they'd always have to do it often on earlier drafts. But on this one, obviously, this is a more after-the-fact novelization, which was more like I wanted to do it you know, afterwards anyway so it would add something extra that it's almost like a prequel. Part of it's a prequel to the story. Yeah. Uh, it's not really anything to do with that, but because uh, I, I recently read um, First Blood, the, the Rambo movie, but oh, yeah. the, the book. And, and then that. after I, re- I read that, I wanted to read, because the same writer did the novelizations of Rambo and uh, Rambo 2 and 3, which oh. are completely different movies. Oh, and yes. I was very, uh, I, was, I was wondering how he actually, because spoiler, Rambo dies in, in the actual book. And yes, yes. so, yeah, the novelizations are very, very much different than the movie. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah they're, they're like, a, they're like a, um, a, a beast of their own. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, what is everyone working on currently? Gary, what, uh, I know it's a weird time right now, but are you working on something? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things brewing. It's just the COVID. It's uh, shut down a couple of things that I wrote that were in production. Um, and it's amazing that I've been getting some auditions lately uh, for like some network stuff. But one thing I booked and then they um, had to, someone got COVID, so they shut that down. I don't know who it was. It was a network show. I didn't hear anything about it, but that was what they said. So uh, other than that, just laying low, riding motorcycles. Pretty much. How about Luke? Uh, yeah, I've actually, um, you know, taken this time off. I, I'm a writer as well. I took a deep dive into a couple of my other projects and got lucky enough. Um, Lionsgate and BuzzFeed are have joined forces and they're, they're going to be producing uh, TV and film and film. I wrote with a, a good buddy of mine got optioned. So we've got a romantic comedy over there that, Oh, Hopefully, cool. you know, when things get back to normal, they can yeah. start working on. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Trista. Um, I'll be heading to uh, North Carolina next month to shoot a film. Uh, and I also co-host a weekly horror podcast. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Called Without Your Head. Oh, That's wow. Trendy. It's a good name for a show, too. Yeah, I recommend it. Yeah. You have a good voice for that. It, it contrasts with, with the other host from understand. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Mark. Well, first, congratulations, Luke, on that on the option. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've got a new film coming out. It's finished. We shot it in January, just before COVID, and the entire um, last five, six months has been doing the post-production on it. It's another one I wrote with Tom Pannell. It's called Painkiller. It's got um, um, Bill Oberst and Michael Perret uh, are the actors in that, and it's about the opioid. Basically, Bill, um, Bill basically in his own personal war against the opioid manufacturers, like big, big pharma. So it's basically a war on big, a war on big pharma. So that's finished, and at the moment it's out to it's out to distributors, that type of thing. I'm also working on some projects with um, actually one of the gentlemen who just um, called in, um, Tim Chisma, oh, okay. working on some uh, on a, a horror project with him as well. And also did a project that was a 9-11 based project as well, like um, about a month ago. And then working on another project also with, with Tom, the next movie that we want to do. So that's probably about, I mean, hopefully only about three or four months away from actually happening. But yeah, the, the, the COVID's impacted everybody, you know, so um, I hope everyone just stay, at least stays safe, but still gets to be super, super creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'm a big fan of Bill Oberst. Uh, he's a great actor. He's been on the show right. several times. He's fantastic. Yeah, Bill's Bill's a, a an absolute. He's he's really the horror industry's absolute true gentleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a very supportive guy. Very good guy. You know, totally. off. You know, great uh, talent, but also a very nice person. Oh yeah, um, yeah. He's 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 the he's the textbook great guy to work with too. Um, it was a great experience because he was in Stress to Kill. Um, I'd worked with him in Stress to Kill. This film, in a way, is almost like an unofficial sequel in the sense that the character from Stress to Kill is the same character in Painkiller, but the events are not necessarily related in the same way. But it's two of the same characters from Stress. But you don't have to have seen Stress to um, get Painkiller. And it's not, it's not like, that's not the um, price of entry, you know, to watch the film. Uh, treacherous Trista. 
Uh, do you have a question for, for any of uh, the people here? Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I Well, you might have asked all of my questions, but I will ask you guys each, do you have a memory from shooting in Mississippi that you want to share? Mm. Gary? Yeah. <laughs> there's so I like the answer just so, yes. But, uh, <laughs> yes I do. Thanks. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, you aren't you aren't gonna say anything? Is it Luke? You going? Oh, oh that's fine. Yeah, yeah, no. Um I'd never I think I hadn't been I was raised in Texas, but I never hadn't been to Mississippi in, since I was probably like seven visiting relatives. So it was just really nice to be in that part of the country and explore that part of the country. But as far as the filming um, I just really enjoyed watching Tristan Gary where, to be honest with you, um, it was kind of a cool role for me. Trista already hinted at it a little bit, like, because our characters, like she had total disregard for my character. I got for a lot of the movie just to sit back and just kind of be a fan of them and watch them and how they prepare and how they get into their roles. So it's cheesy to say, but the whole thing was really fun for me. Um, but yeah, getting to see them work was just, just a bonus. I really enjoyed it. Try to follow that answer. <laughs> 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 it's always hard to top Luke, man. He's just all, all around um, one of the best humans on the planet, which is how I talk. When I introduce and talk about Luke to my you know, people that don't know him, I mean, out of my friends around here, he's just the ultimate person on the planet. Um, but a memory always springs to mind when it comes to filming. Um, Purgatory Road is there's that long scene we have where that priest comes and knocking on the door and then it's this long kind of, I think it was like, I don't know how many pages, 12 pages or something of dialogue. And I remember walking on set and we're doing blocking and it was me, Trista, Luke. Um, and then the, the father forgot his name, um, comes up and knocks on the door and does this whole scene. And I kept thinking, damn, this is going to take a, all day to shoot. But I was so impressed. We did a, like one or two blocking things. We just rolled with it. And I was thinking after we did like one or two takes, damn, like this thing's actually moving along. And I remember just being so excited. Like, and this is what you get when you work with professionals is Trista's prepared. Luke's prepared. I was hopefully prepared. Mark was prepared. Um, That's what I remember that particular scene, because I remember thinking the night before, this is going to be a nightmare. And it wasn't at all. And like Luke said too, exploring that country, we went and visited uh, that, memorial out there in Mississippi and I've never been to Mississippi before. Now I can say I've been, and it was a, an amazing time. Literally the whole month there was, I have no complaints at all. Uh, Mark, had you uh, filmed in Mississippi before? No, no, never filmed in Mississippi. Got approached about a year earlier by the miss by a few people from the Mississippi film commission. And they said to us, oh, why don't you think of doing some shooting here? It was at AFM, actually, when they were here for AFM. We got talking to them, um, Chris Smurdis, who's a line producer on the film. Her and I met with them and said, come out to Mississippi and have a look. So we did. We went out there about um, three or four months before we did Purgatory Road and had a look. And they were really, really welcoming. And we met, you know, we met people who knew crew members and we just got a really good feeling was feeling really good about it. And the Mississippi film commission were just amazing. You know, they were, um, aside from also getting like a, um, you know, 
you get a um, like a bonus for shooting um, for shooting in the city in the state. Um, it was a really great experience. But I guess with me, one thing I really remember, um, aside from the fact that it was just great to work with such professionals, um, you know, these three, these three cast members here are just amazing. So, I mean, every day is exciting. Every day is like, I mean, that's to me, that's the real juice of filmmaking is that you start with a, you start with a page with a bit of writing on it. At the end of the day, you've got something captured inside something like in this kind of like magic capsule. Um, and I really, you know, I, I never take it for granted that I make movies. You know, it's a real privilege to make movies and it's a, something, I mean, something you fight for all your life to be able to do it because you're never shooting as much as you want either. Like, you know, like you'd love to be doing it all the time and constantly, but you can't because you've got to raise money for the next movie. You've got to organise things. But one memory I have is one of the shoots when we had Gary um, preaching inside the tent, that was like the coldest night. And we had, like, that tent was not a set. It was in the middle of this field. Like, all day we were there, and then it went into the night until about 3 or 4 in the morning. And we were in the middle of Mississippi in, in, a, in a, you know, a field at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I think it was, like, at one point it was, like, I think it was minus something, whatever, and everyone was just freezing it was freezing and you can even see in some of the scenes when gary's speaking you know he's got like you can see his breath but actually in my notes i wasn't sure if that was added to make it look like it was no, cold. It really was cold. No, interesting definitely not added and and even some of the extras we sort of made sure that we shot some of the the insert shots of the extras watching um so that we just at the end it was just gary and gary was almost like a snowman you know, like he was like frozen, but he was great. And I think it really added in a sense to the to the performance because he also has an angry scene with his brother there as well. And I'd say that probably some of the anger was probably coming from just how much he was freezing his balls off in that. Yeah. In that, that, that was the hardest scene to shoot, period, that because of the cold. Yeah. I could I remember my voice, you know, I couldn't even get, I couldn't even talk. I remember talking to Jeremy Sandy on the side and I was like, man, I can't do this scene. I can't even, my voice was frozen because it was, and there was no more coffee. All the extras dr- drank all the hot chocolate. And I'm like, damn. So I took a shot just to keep warm. Uh, and it literally lit me up. It got a little bit of uh, warmth in my throat. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, I thought, the by far the most difficult scene to shoot. I wanted to uh, give a quick Shout out to Mark too, Mark. I don't know if I've ever told you this in person, but thank you for being a director that we can trust. And I think all three of us would echo that. Like when we talk about Tristan and Gary, I've already touched on. You don't know when you sign on to something if it's going to turn into anything that you can show to people that you can never even mention. But you delivered the vision that you said you had, and that means a lot to actors to be able to trust that the director is doing what he or she says they are going to do. So thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. And thanks for trust. Yeah. Thanks for trusting, trusting me because I, um, I mean, I know how, how crucial it is the way that you're presented to an actor, because you can easily be even made to look bad in the edit suite. I mean, if it's not edited properly or if it's not, if, if you don't somehow capture the performance in the right way, I mean, that's what editing does. Editing can be very helpful or can be actually hurtful too, if it's not, done so no, I, I appreciate that because I mean that that is a source of uh, always a source of anxiety for me I want to be able to deliver what I promised you know I never just take for granted well oh, okay yeah you know 
you know, they should, you know, I, I've got that thing about I want to be able to at least do something which comes close to what I originally approached you with because you've given me your trust in your time and, yeah, and no one on these kind of movies is making millions of dollars. So the thing is, it is a, it is a trust situation. So now that, that means a lot to me to hear that from you because I, I really admire what you guys do as actors. I know how hard it is. I also know how hard it is as a career as well. It's not, it's really, you know, the cliche is not for the faint-hearted, but it's not for most hearts, I would say, you know, <laughs> because it's really, really, it's really tough. I mean, directing's tough too because you're, you're always having to do your own projects. You're always trying to get stuff up. You know, that has its own things. But acting, you're very much often at the whim of the director and the producer, you know, and either gonna, they're either going to bring integri- integrity bring their integrity to extend it to the way that you're portrayed in the movie or, or they're not. And I get really angry sometimes when someone just has a dismissive attitude about the, the actors. Cause you know, like someone will say, Oh yeah, you know, that was four or five years ago. Have you put the film out yet? Oh no, no, you know, dude, I don't think I'll finish it. And I'm like, you've got to finish it. You know, these actors have, these actors have put their heart and soul into the movie and they depend on the film being out there. That's their, that's how they sell themselves, especially if it's a good role. You know, you, like you have to, I think you've, you've got to respect everyone, everyone's role in the movie is reflected in the, how, in, the, in the ultimate movie. And that's also how you get more work, but also how you also feed your own, you know, feed your own self-esteem. It gets fed by how well you're portrayed. Yeah. I want to thank everyone for uh, being on the show today. Really had a good time. And well, sorry for any of the technical difficulties when we started, but uh, I think we finished well. Well, thanks for also doing what you do, Neil, um, with you. shows like this because you're really throwing a spotlight on, um, you know, on a, a very, you know, it's an amazing industry and you have amazing, you know, amazing people highlighting their skills and especially to me seeing you honouring here the three leads in the movie is just, um, it's just fantastic. You know, I appreciate everyone coming on and, uh, and thank you, though. It, it is nice to, um, I mean, we have, uh, you know, sometimes legends and stuff on the show, but it's nice to, uh, if it's something we like, even if it's something we don't like, but it's good to get uh, the word out there for independent films. <laughs> yeah, Not to mention it. any movies, but every once in a while there might right. be a movie. We, 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 we know. Well, th- thank, thank you, guys. You. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Neil. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whedon. Uh, that's right, Bill Whedon uh, from Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. I'm here wearing my Without Your Head t-shirt, drinking from my Without Your Head cup. I, 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 you may not know that I'm going to be in a movie that's coming out fairly soon, produced by the head honcho of Without Your Head, Mr. Neil Jones. Anyway, I'm here not to promote movies, but to get you to go out and vote. Now, you may not know it, but when I made Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD back almost 30 years ago, even then... That character, that hateful, villainous character, was based on Donald Trump. Now, not to say I'm not here to, you know, tell you who to vote for, but uh, that villainous, horrible character was based on Donald Trump, just incidentally. But my main purpose here is to get you to vote, no matter who you vote for. No matter who you vote for, go out and vote. Uh, I'm not voting for Donald Trump, but you can vote for whoever you want to, just Get out and vote. This is the most important me- this is the most important election of our lifetime, and the reason is we want to get Trump out of there. But go out and vote for whoever you vote for. This is Bill Whedon saying, vote.
From ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. The tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming night!